Um, by economy, it's not, I would say it's not a choice. Uh, it's an obligation. So the idea it's like to have a box of Lego bricks, but instead they are uh, DNA parts. Hey there, I'm Luca Fusar Bassini. I'm a PhD student in computational biology at TPFL in Switzerland, and you're listening to a biotech futurist. The Biotech Futurist aims to foster deep understanding and discussion about exciting hot topics in biotech. But I want to say from the beginning that it is by no means rigorous in teaching the subject. And for the sake of outreach, sometimes we need generalizations that, of course, simplify the reality of the science behind what we are discussing. But I can say that my guests and I do our best to be clear and to go in depth. You can imagine to be out with me and my expert guest for a friendly conversation to get a general understanding and more curiosity, having fun as much as I've had recording this podcast. This podcast has no sponsors and any reference is not meant to support any commercial activity. This podcast is a solo effort, so if you wish to support me, I'd be grateful if you followed the Biotech Futurist on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Instagram or your top podcasting platform and share it with your friends. With that said, I am excited to move on to today's conversation at the Biotech Futurist. Today I'm so excited to host Stefano Bertacchi to discuss industrial biotechnologies. This is a topic that I'm not so familiar with, so let's delve deep into this with Stefano. Um, I met Stefano because uh, he's one of the leading authorities uh, in outreach uh, in the biofields uh, in Italy, um, so I'm really thankful to have him with me. He's currently a postdoc at the University of Milan, but I'd be happy, Stefano, if you could introduce yourself uh, briefly to us. Uh, your um, career, your passions, and your current research. And then maybe I will ask you a little bit more of questions about your story and beliefs and passions. Okay, thank you so much, Luca, as a start for the invitation and for the kind, very kind words. Thank you so much. And as mentioned, I'm currently a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Milano Bicocca at the Department of Biotechnology and Bioscience in the group of Industrial Biotechnology in Biotech Lab for short. And I studied biotechnology and then industrial biotechnology. Then I worked for some years for a company that was a spin-off of the university. And then I started the PhD in Converging Technologies for Biomolecular Systems at the University of Milan Bicocca. And then I started uh, my journey as a postdoc. Uh, my research field uh, is focused on the development of uh, biorefineries in the context of both uh, industrial biotechnology and bioeconomy in order to develop some processes based uh, on uh, biomasses mostly residual ones, like uh, uh, the side uh, biomasses of other processes like uh, agroforestry uh, or industrial uh, food sector um, to, to be uh, even more valorized uh, in, uh, in the line with the cascading principles. And also the use of microbial cell factories, so microbes, especially yeasts, to exploit their natural abilities to consume these compounds and to produce molecules of industrial relevance, but also uh, with uh, genetic engineering and metabolic engineering of uh, these microbes in order to produce uh, even more molecules of interest. And those, those molecules 
are mainly focused on sectors like biofuels, bioplastics, uh, but also food-related molecules uh, or pharma compounds uh, uh, molecules. And uh, as mentioned, I'm also a science communicator and I'm active uh, in different ways, uh, both on social media and uh, with live events. Uh, I also write different uh, uh, styles of science communication uh, with both the books, uh, articles, uh, um, and so on. And, uh, and I like memes as well. I also had the opportunity to give some lectures, uh, lectures uh, related to science communication for biotechnology in several Italian universities. Um, related to these kind of topics uh, and also how to communicate uh, science and biotechnology with memes uh, as well that are powerful uh, language for especially for social media of course exciting uh, as i typically post a meme a week uh, on the topics of this podcast i'll make sure to ask stefano about his memes uh, so we can share some of his best memes uh, in the stories of the podcast uh, when his episode comes out Thank you for sharing, and Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, please, guys, don't freeze uh, if you hear these words, biorefineries, biofuels, and so on, that Stefano has been mentioning. Uh, we'll make sure to define all of them during this episode. Of course. So for the moment, I I'll be uh, interested to ask you about how your passion started. I mean, your passion for microorganisms and yeasts and uh, what you're doing today. What was the starting moment? That's a tricky question because I think that there has never been a starting moment. Uh, when I was at the high school, I don't know uh, if w which kind of uh, thoughts I had on biotechnology or GMOs or microbes. Uh, I didn't really thought about that. I enrolled in biotechnology basically because I wanted to do something related to life science and it looks like something more with I could have more opportunity to get a job than at the end. Uh, so really basic. Uh, but during studying, I realized the potential of molecular biology and uh, genetic engineering. And at the same time, thanks to the professor of uh, microbiology, that is still currently my professor <laughs> in the lab, uh, I realized how much powerful such microbes could be. So it became uh, to me like natural to go in that direction or to work with yeasts. Uh, I might say that I don't mind working with other microbes. I did with, I work with bacteria as well and with other uh, microorganisms close to microalgae, for example. Um, still understanding the this huge potential of microbes and what they can do by the use of uh, um, the genetic modification inside an industrial biotechnology contest. Um, so uh, I think there's never been uh, a, a turning point of that. I would say it was a, a sum of things uh, and I'm happy with that because I'm, I'm still happy with this kind of job that I'm doing and this type of research that of course involved during time uh, with for example with the introduction of new techniques like CRISPR Cas that don't worry we will explain later um, and uh, yes I, unfortunately I don't have like this inspirational stories uh, about this thing but 
I think that sometimes like uh, normal path or common path uh, is also good to be told because then uh, it happens and it's normal that happens. Yeah, I'm totally on your page, but sometimes meeting the right people passionate about what we're doing is really a powerful motivator to find your direction in research and uh, also in your hobbies and so on. And I also think that yeah, the excitement for something uh, comes when you do something in depth, right? You could do several different uh, research activities, but each of them can become uh, really interesting once uh, you start uh, going in depth. Um, and that's leading us probably to the main topic of today's conversation, which is uh, industrial biotechnologies, as we've mentioned. Uh, so Stefano, could you please introduce us broadly, at least for the beginning, uh, to the main teams, goals and research directions today in the field of industrial biotechnology? Um, so basically, industrial biotechnology, um, also called uh, um, grey biotechnology, are going, basically the goal is to exploit cells, mainly microbes, to produce uh, relevant compounds uh, for sectors, uh, of industrial sectors. Let's say that biorefineries are the core of industrial biotechnology. Uh, possibly biorefineries can also be not reliant on microbes, uh, basically burning a log of woods in the chimney is a biorefinery. Of course, it's a very raw biorefinery because then biorefinery is defined as a process that uses biomass. Okay, so basically uh, wood is biomass, so burning it for producing energy, it's a biorefinery um, in principle. Uh, with microbes, microbes are like workers uh, of a huge uh, industry that transform a raw material into something completely different. I always use the example of cotton that enters a, a firm and exits as a shirt. So of course there are two different, completely different uh, materials, uh, but they are made of the original material as well. But like microbes have the ability to really transform something into something completely different. And example of this actually is Oh, oh, it's around us because in our kitchen we use we have a lot of products that derive from fermentation like uh, uh, spirits or yogurt um, where sugars are transformed into something completely different it's alcohol or lactic acid to to obtain yogurt uh, chemical speaking they are absolutely different um, and different you can see because then of course uh, beer is different from wheat uh, uh, from barley and the uh, yogurt is different from milk or, or cheese is different from milk and this means also that uh, um, humans have always been uh, uh, industrial biotechnologies since the beginning of civilization uh, because these like wine making uh, or bread making or cheese making uh, are biotechnological processes because they exploit some microbes that could mainly yeasts 
bacteria and molds as well, if you think of famous cheese like Gorgonzola or Roquefort. And so these are some examples of industrial biotechnology. But uh, of course it became something more technical and more technological advanced, uh, where we can produce some molecules that are really relevant to our also transition from uh, order to phase out uh, fossil resources, like in the example of bioplastics, when we can have the production of lactic acid and then the polymerization uh, into uh, PLA, that is polylactic acid. And it's a molecule that I worked on uh, developing uh, some microbial factories for that. And, um, and with uh, genetic modification as well, we can uh, also, from one side, improve the production of such compounds, or either make the cells produce something that they are not able to uh, as a whole. Uh, a, a good example is, for example, the production of insulin uh, from uh, recombinant uh, bacteria. This is one of the cases where we can see that industrial biotechnology actually uh, overlaps with other biotechnologies like, I don't know, um, health biotechnology, so red biotechnology, so the production of a drug, it's pharma or industrial, it's both, I might say. So there's no real, really a, a border between uh, these two. I don't know, the production of uh, uh, antibody, monoclonal antibody by the use of yeast or by the use of human cell genetically modified for that is industrial biotechnology or uh, health biotechnology. I might say both because that yeah. the the, uh, the use of that molecule is related to health, whereas the uh, plant, the bioreactors, uh, the the engineering that's behind its industrial biotechnology. Exciting! Thank you so much. I think you gave a really beautiful overview. Um, I think that you mentioned several products that we buy on a daily basis that an industrial biotechnology origin that we tend not to think about so that's really great these are kind of classical examples right and you also yeah. started mentioning a few examples related to the transition to a more sustainable and circular economy so i wonder could you briefly give us a few examples and more in-depth information about how industrial biotechnologies can help us transition towards a more sustainable economy and uh, more advanced examples uh, of industrial biotechnology trends in research. So what's trendy out there in academia that may really be the next big player in the industrial world in a few years from now on? Yeah, um, as a start, the context is the one of bioeconomy. That is a context that I know since have been appointed by the European Commission last year as EU bioeconomy youth ambassador. So I'm also happy to uh, to advocate for this this topic. Um, by economy, it's not I would say it's not a choice. Uh, it's an obligation, uh, both for uh, the environment and both for the economics, uh, the economy as a whole, uh, because it's starting to being uh, uh, economically even more economically sustainable. Uh, where it's economic 
economics is one of the three pillars of sustainability together with social and the uh, environmental and we have to take all the three things into account when we are discussing processes or theory and whatever and um, i might say that uh, as mentioned the use of biomass uh, is really a driver to phase out uh, uh, fossil resources um, basically because we can use a renewable uh, raw material that is biomass, because biomass mainly comes from uh, uh, plants. Um, biomass can be also animal origin, like, I don't know, milk, let's say, for example. Um, but the thing is that plants can grow really fast, thanks to photosynthesis. Uh, and in principle can also capture the CO2 that is released from uh, the use of some of these molecules when they burn, like for example biofuels. But we can't hide behind uh, the excuse of uh, photosynthesis to say, okay, let's use only plants uh, because otherwise we will end cutting all the trees down and we know that deforestation is not good. Um, therefore, Therefore, we have to both say, okay, let's go to the use of biomasses, but let's keep the, the principles of uh, circular economy and cascading principle. So let's keep using, let's keep thinking and designing uh, products and uh, uh, processes that can uh, um, increase the lifespan of uh, a raw material till it can be used till the end. And, and only burn it uh, when it really doesn't have a value anymore. Um, so uh, let's say about the trends. So I would say that one of the trends uh, in this case uh, is to make uh, um, my microbial cell factory that are genetically modified, for example, even more viable for industry. One of the problems uh, is that you can make uh, uh, a sexy microbe uh, modified with specific genes tailored and blah blah but then it's too much costly to, to make it to be used then in a real industrial environment uh, on the other hand now with these new technologies like CRISPR-Cas that we might then focus on uh, really can like give superpowers to, to this so really the explosion of uh, uh, microbial cell factory that are easier to, to be made, uh, easier to be uh, tailored and to be controlled. And uh, yes, I might say that this is one of the trend uh, together with the production of other compounds can, can from one side substitute their fossil fuel uh, uh, counterparts, but still is not a, a good uh, a uh, way of thinking for the long run because you know bioplastics doesn't solve the problem of plastic as a whole also mm. because not all bioplastics are biodegradable or compostable it's complicated that thing and we might need another episode of this <laughs> podcast yeah. only to, it's to a whole go brand in detail yeah. of that so you see that for these reasons as well i started also my science communication activity because i realized that all this stuff needed to be explained to the broader people, uh, but also to policymakers because they they make policies. And uh, I am in a country that, for example, don't don't like doesn't like GMOs. 
despite Sad. being very important to a lot of things, not only for the plant sector, so the agro, uh, the plant biotechnology, but also for the microbial sulfactory development. Yeah, uh, so I think you've touched upon several interesting uh, uh, topics that we'll uh, extend on in a few moments. Uh, and uh, you've mentioned, of course, CRISPR-Cas and gene editing. So guys, you can realize now that this is a really a game changer. As we've mentioned, CRISPR-Cas technologies, both in the context of interventional genomics and of viral diagnostics in the first episodes of this podcast. So this is exciting to see how technology can really change everything in several different fields. But before going into that and uh, advanced topics such as synthetic biology and so on, that we'll be happy to discuss later. Um, I'd be happy to start from a passion of yours, Stefano, which is, uh, I think, a passion of yours, uh, lignocellulosic biomasses. So what are lignocellulosic biomasses and why are they interesting in a bioeconomy setting and why are they preferred as feedstocking for biorefineries? Yeah, so lignocellulose basically is something that everyone knows because it's wood in a nutshell. Uh, and also the nutshell, I might say, lignocellulose, I don't know, probably. Um, so this was a nice joke. Uh, and uh, um, so basically, lignocellulose is made of three components that are cellulose, hemicellulose, and lignin. So cellulose is basically what paper is made of, okay? Uh, hemicellulose uh, is like similar to cellulose, but made of other sugars, mainly sugars with six and five uh, carbon atoms. And then there's lignin, that is a complex structure not made of sugars, that uh, makes the, the, the wood uh, um, resistant to microbes in the air, otherwise they will be, uh, uh, trees will be eaten in, in the fields, basically, they wouldn't resist attack. Um, so the thing is that, uh, of course, uh, this is a possibility to use uh, as raw material since lignocellulose is something that humans do not eat because we are not able to eat food. I don't know if you ever try to, 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 to chomp a table, but don't, uh, try this at all, please. don't try, don't try this at all, please. Uh, but you wouldn't be able to do that or to digest it. Uh, don't even try to eat paper because we won't digest it because we don't have the enzyme for doing that. There's uh, uh, other animals do, but thanks mostly thanks to their uh, gut microbiota, okay, that helps them. So I don't know, termites uh, uh, are able to to eat food thanks to their microbes in the gut. Um, and they jaw, their jaws basically only destroy little pieces of wood and, uh, uh, and then the microbes do the job. So the thing is that uh, cellulose is it's easy because it's made of glucose and a lot of microbes like glucose. Uh, so uh, let's say that cellulose can be used directly as a polymer, so modified chemically to make some type of plastics. Actually, the first plastics were derived from cellulose. And um, then the thing is that uh, with cellulose is easy and generally it's uh, extracted from food to make uh, pulp uh, that then becomes uh, paper and everything else is waste material. And a lot of plants uh, 
like uh, um, cane um, are made of mostly lignocellulose and they don't have any value for our industry. Um, so, or straws uh, or other leftover from, uh, uh, I don't know, agro agroforestry and so on. So then we have hemicellulose. Hemicellulose is made of these C5 and C6 sugars. And if we are talking about the Baker's yeast, for example, it really likes, it, it really likes uh, uh, C6 sugars like uh, glucose, but it doesn't like uh, C5 sugar. So literally it's not able to eat them. So options are two, either you genetically modify the yeast, this yeast, uh, to force it to eat also C5 sugars, or you can exploit the biodiversity that is out there and use other microbes that are naturally able to do to use C5. Let's say that Becker's yeast, that it's known as Saccharomyces cerevisiae, it's a bit of posh. We we selected it and evolved it for our purposes, but it became really like lazy as humans, and um, so. Sorry to my Saccharomyces cell that might listen to this. I love you still, but you are posh because you don't like these C5 sugars, whereas other microbes does. And then there's lignin uh, itself uh, that is really recalcitrant, so it's really hard to, to break down. Uh, despite there are some microbes that do that, and we know these microbes. Actually, they're not microbes. They are big ones, like, you know, the fungi, that grow on the bark of the tree, like the one that grow uh, horizontally, uh, they are really useful because they produce some enzymes that are able to break down lignin, that's called lacase. This lacase can be really useful to, to break down lignin as well because cellulose and hemicellulose is really intertwined with lignin and that's why the, uh, the process to extract cellulose from uh, wood is really uh, energy uh, consuming. So the thing is that this lignocellulose in principle is a type of biomass and that it's in principle cheap, very abundant. And it's also, I like to say that is uh, in general biomass, but lignocellulose is even more, is democratic because it's evenly spread among the world, um, not in the uh, of course, not in the deserts, but uh, like if you think of fossil resources, they are um, concentrated in specific parts of the world, like deserts, let's say. Uh, but this, of course, creates some geopolitical tensions that, as we saw with the problems with Russia and gas um, deployment, uh, that's relying uh, more and more from uh, biomass is not only for energy right? because we have alternatives that are renewable but also for other types of like you know materials it's fundamental and countries like Italy have a lot of biomass as waste material let's think of the food sector okay that has a lot of lignocellulose, but not only lignocellulose, let's think of uh, citrus uh, wastes in the south of Italy. Uh, so, of course, there's huge potential and lignocellulose. So, basically, it's some type of junk. And as humans do not like eating junk, also microbes doesn't, uh, microbes don't. 
but we can either force them or we can select and find out there like researchers of biodiversity some microbes that can do the job fantastic so to sum up in very simple terms uh, you've uh, explained to us uh, quite in depth uh, that uh, lignocellulosic biomasses are somehow cheap uh, easy and well standardized to feed microorganisms and also you mentioned this democracy principle which is really interesting and i had never heard about so thank you so much for mentioning it um and just to clarify a bit about what c5 and c6 sugars that you've mentioned are that just refers to a difference in chemical conformation so nothing too special just different categories and you know different types of molecules can be metabolized by different enzymes Uh, so in the end uh, um some organisms are able to metabolize both some are able to metabolize only one so stefano mentioned uh cases uh, in which this is uh, indeed the case so I think it's time to go for a little ta- bit of time, uh, more in depth on our technical uh, words. So let's start from what is separate hydrolysis and fermentation and what is simultaneous saccharification and fermentation? Okay, so uh, it's fundamental to introduce the concept of hydrolysis that I did mentioned before. So hydrolysis is the process where you break down uh, polymer, in this case, cellulose and hemicellulose into um, shorter chain or monomers, so like glucose or C5, like xylose or arabinose. And this is uh, done in different ways, like chemical treatment, uh, but the preferred one is uh, enzymatic hydrolysis, where you can use, and I did my research, an enzymatic cocktail, it's called like this, that is basically a mixture of different types of enzymes that break down cellulose and hemicellulose. And this way you can obtain from your original biomass like a juice, let's say, a, a, a sweet juice made of sugar-released sugars that can be given to microbes for their growth and possibly the production of the molecule that you want. So, and then, so this part is the, so you have the, the hydrolysis, and you have the fermentation. The fermentation, we tend to think of only alcoholic and lactic fermentation, but in our context, uh, uh, that fermentation, it's more a um, biochemical definition. We have an engineering definition where the fermentation is basically giving food to a microbe in a bioreactor to do stuff, okay? so. Uh, it could not also. It could be not only a fermentation uh, in the biochemical sense. So to obtain, uh, I don't know, the production of insulin in E. coli can be called the fermentation. But metabolically speaking, is not fermentation. Okay, but we like to use the same word for a lot of things. But it's complicated. Uh, but never mind. So the important thing is that you have in mind that these are these two steps. And with the ASHF, that is the separated hydrolysis of fermentation, these two are separated. So there's a vessel when you have the hydrolysis, and then there's a vessel when you have the fermentation. And the advantage of this is that, of course, you can have the optimum conditions in terms of temperature, pH, uh, um, whatever, uh, for the hydrolysis and for the uh, fermentation as well. And often they don't match, 
Okay, so let's say that my cells grow perfectly at 30 degrees Celsius, uh, whereas the enzymatic radiolysis works better at 50 degrees Celsius. Okay, but and at, at pH 8, where the cells are not happy with that. Then you can have the um, um, simultaneous sacrification and fermentation, so the SSF, where they occur at the same time. So this means that in the same vessel, you put the enzymes and the microbes together. So this you have the advantage that is one step, not two steps, of course. Uh, but you have to, it's kind of tug of war situation where you have to find uh, a good balance between the conditions of the enzymes uh, and the microbes. Um, an advantage could be the fact that the microbes can uh, immediately start using the sugars that are released from the enzymes, by the hydrolysis of the enzymes. And this is an advantage because often enzymes are inhibited by the sugars that they release. Okay, so there's this feedback inhibition towards the enzyme themselves. So if you have that the microbes consume the sugar, they can't inhibit the, the enzyme. So in principle, the enzyme could work better. They are not stopped from their own product. On the other side, of course, the problem is that uh, you can't re get rid of the solid component that you re release because, of course, not all the biomass is uh, hydrolyzed. There's a part that is, for example, lignin not uh, attacked by these enzymes because they are specific for sugars. And so this part often has some uh, inhibitory or stressful compounds that can impair uh, microbial growth. Okay. Uh, but like, for example, in the process that I developed during the PhD, paradoxically, since my product was carotenoids and they are produced when the cells are stressed, we saw that when we had the ASSF process, uh, they produced more uh, carotenoids, probably because they were more stressed by the presence of the solid part. So the thing is that uh, at the beginning, you can't say, you can't know which will be the best option among the two. Uh, you have to try. <laughs> it would be, I really would be happy if we have like a magic uh, sphere to, to foresee which of the two would be better, but it's not. And then there's another option that it is consolidated by a process where you have also the uh, pre-treatment of the biomass that is helps to break down the intertwined structure of lignocellulose. Uh, that is together with the enzymatic hydrolysis and the microbial fermentation. Yeah, I think you've made it clear, but there are strong biochemical subtleties underlying all these like kinetic and thermodynamic equilibria really matter when designing uh, the right combination of enzyme and microbe to achieve a desired outcome. So could you please give us case-specific advantages and examples. I mean, you've mentioned a few advantages. Could you refer to an example of uh, separate hydrolysis and fermentation and another example of simultaneous sacrification and fermentation and make it clear for us uh, and our time maybe because this is something that most of us are not familiar with probably why these examples are relevant for the two different uh, strategies, let's say. Um, okay, let's think about it. So uh, basically, I might say that somehow like beer making 
it's uh, a separated hydrolysis and fermentation uh, where you have first uh, an hydrolysis uh, by the addition of enzymes in order to make the worth uh, releasing some sugars okay and then to provide them easily to the yeast because yeast uh, because let's say that barley it's made of uh, um, starch okay that is a polymer of glucose the problem is that uh, um, yeast doesn't have the micro the, the enzymes to break down completely starch so you need something from outside to to help um, whereas uh, an example of uh, simultaneous sacrification and fermentation, it might be even more uh, stupid, but uh, bread baking is an example because uh, when you had uh, um, you had your flour, uh, you had water, and you had the yeast. When you had flour, when you had uh, water, basically to your dough, to make the dough, uh, uh, you activate the enzymes that are already in the flour. Um, and so they are breaking down uh, some part of the starch, and at the same time you pour the, uh, the yeast. Um, and the yeast are consuming uh, um, sugars when they are released from, uh, uh, from starch. So basically these are two examples of these two processes that we are really familiar with and we don't realize that there's this difference. In the case of uh, uh, bread making, uh, it's ASSF is the only option because otherwise uh, you would be like in a situation where you have to make uh, to wait uh, for the enzymes to work and then to add uh, the the yeast separately. Neat example. Awesome. Thank you so much. You've shown us that biotechnologies are really around us and they're not just futuristic. They are also in the present and in very daily situations. So this will be really a major driver of change in many sectors uh, as it's been for quite a few years, I guess, as beer making and bread baking have been with us for quite a long time now. So yes. time to introduce another big concept, of course, you've mentioned it indirectly, probably. What are bioreactors and how do bioreactors work? Yeah, so bioreactors are, um, I'd say, a vessel. Okay. A vessel where cells grow. I, I will refer mainly, and I'm doing already, to microbial cells because it's basically I'm biased my from my job. But it could be also insect cells, uh, mammalian cells, uh, or bacteria, or other types of cells, or muscle cells, like in the case of synthetic meat, just to add some hype. Which would be another uh, but, great topic for a podcast, by the way. Let's yes, go. but another time. So basically, it's it's a cylinder where you can put cells to grow. And uh, with steroid turbine reactors, there's like, like this, uh, um, this helix, let's say, that runs, spins, uh, and make all the liquid spin around. To, to to make the cells not to go to the bottom, but to make it round. So also, if we think of uh, you know this uh, uh, this steel uh, uh, bioreactor that are used for wine making or, or beer making, they are bioreactors. Okay. So 
if a reactor is a place where a chemical reaction occurs, okay, the bioreactor is where a biochemical reaction occurs, and sometimes it's with enzymes only, but often it's with cells. So uh, bioreactor are very useful because you can, it's, I like to say that it's like the bigger brother uh, show, TV show, where you have uh, like the cameras checking of everything happening in the house. And uh, a bioreactor is basically the same because you have a lot of sensors inside the bioreactor that can check the concentration of glucose, the pH, the temperature, the oxygen uh, uh, that is uh, released in the, in the liquid uh, and other stuff. And you can uh, check this thing online. Um, or you can have some uh, data offline as well. So you can also say to the to, to the computer uh, if the pH drops below I don't know five, uh, add some um, soda from hydroxic um, sodium hydroxide uh, or base, let's say to to increase the the pH and it is connected to a pump and pumps into uh, the vessel uh, this kind of, uh, uh, of chemical to increase the, the pH or to, to keep it to, to five. Or um, if the oxygen dissolved in the liquid is too low, increase your spinning speed. Uh, in order to increase the oxygen that is dissolved into the water. So basically, bioreactors is a way to have a controlled environment uh, in order to know better what's happening inside. So all the industrial processes are based on bioreactors. I had the luck to having to be in a research group where we have several bioreactors, two liter bioreactors and 10 liter bioreactors. And, uh, and I had the opportunity to work with them as well. So we, I tried to make some scale up from the flask uh, scale to the bioreactor scale. Uh, so generally uh, things change, but luckily uh, sometimes there are some, some, something that stays, but it's really a different environment. And then when you scale up even more with the production, you go to a reactors that can be one million liter. And that, of course, is needed when you produce something that is like, like a bulk chemical, like a biofuel or bioplastic. But when you are dealing, I don't know, with the production of a drug or um, something related to the food sector where less is needed, that there's more money to be made, it's, uh, it's easier and you don't need to have such higher production uh, also in terms of scale up. Yeah, but scale up is a huge topic itself. And it's really interesting to consider how several of the processes that now are deployed at an industrial level were probably the child of academic research. So typically in academic settings, uh, people explore several different combinations. And uh, here we can start dealing with uh, the two main characters of today's episode, which are as Stefano mentioned quite a few times now, microorganisms on one side and enzymes on the other side. So yes. these two guys are typically in bioreactors in different combinations and I mean, the strategies are kind of endless and the strategies to discover probably even more. So Stefano, could you give us examples of, uh, let's start from microorganisms. So your favorite microorganisms deployed by biorefineries, maybe you could explain to us how they were discovered and 
how they can be optimized, engineered and evolved. I think mutagenesis here plays a major role when versus identifying promising strains. I think there's really quite a few things to discuss here, so trying to sum up what I was saying. Uh, examples of your favorite microorganisms and maybe use these examples uh, to show us how people discover microorganisms with an industrial potential, how they optimize, engineer and evolve them. Thank you. Yes, I, I might say that after uh, uh, trash talking uh, it, uh, of course, Saccharomyces cerevisiae is my favorite one because it's my basically my colleague. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, I know it's a bit mainstream, but uh, so I would go with Rhodosporidium turloides, which is a yeast uh, as well that I used during my PhD, and it's uh, oleaginous one, and uh, it's naturally able to produce lipids in high content, but also it's able to produce carotenoids. So basically, it's orange, red orange colored. So it colors my life <laughs> and uh, it's able to produce naturally these carotenoids. Uh, so it's good because we don't have to, principle, if we can manage to use it directly at the industrial scale, we won't need to have uh, uh, other natural resources, uh, carotenoids like from carrots or the fruit of uh, palm oil. And but especially 90% of the carotenoids produced produce nowadays, it's made from fossil resources as well, from so petrochemical synthesis. That is not a problem. That is petrochemical synthesis at uh, at this stage because some people think okay, it's dangerous because it's made from petrol. No, it's safe still. But the problem is the use of fossil resources. Okay, as a start. And uh, and I like it a lot also because uh, basically it's every kind of garbage that I give it. <laughs> so as I say, the Sacramento service is posh, uh, whereas uh, uh, really Rosas for Eaters is a junk food eater, and it's basically any kind of sugar that I throw at it. So it was great because I could explore different types of biomasses and it was able to produce carotenoids, whatever, without caring. Um, and, and the reason I would say um, it's more because it's it's a reason why we selected Cerevisi for our goals, that we now are knowing it. Because it was so good, it's basically so good in doing uh, one thing that is ferment also in uh, presence of oxygen to produce a lot of alcohol basically <laughs> that's the point and eat glucose that is very common out there so it might say it might say that uh, uh service is then my favorite one because we have so many tools to genetically modifying it and we know a lot of stuff about it so it's uh, it's really a microbial cell factory that is established. Then, of course, biodiversity can be really exploited. There are a lot of microbes out there that are very interesting. Also, um, going only to yeasts, really, there's a huge potential. And that's why I like also to explain as a science communicator the fact that yeasts are not only baker's yeasts, but there are plenty of. Uh, some of them are nasty, like, you know, Candida albicans, for example, but others are really interesting and uh, 
uh, useful. Um, and also biodiversity of yeast is reflected on beer making because ale my, um, beers are made from cerveza, but uh, lager beer are made with other microbes uh, uh, like Saccharomyces glossarianus. And we see the difference when we drink the two styles of beers. Um, so how to find then microbes that can be useful out there? Uh, let's say that it really depends, like these two microbes, there's no way to, to say how Cerevisia was uh, selected for the first time. I would say that Louis Pasteur was one of the first to, to see yeast. Yes, but I mean, it was known since the, the, the beginning of society, because then Egyptians were made beers, made bread, but they didn't know because they didn't have a microscope. And with Rhodesporidium uh, tyroloides, we know that it was uh, um, isolated from the air in China. In, I think, was Hainan, I don't remember the place, no, Dailan, Dailan, in the 60s, in the 70s, I don't remember. But, I mean, it's kind of new microbes to be discovered, let's say. And uh, but it's what is called so nothing exciting, I would say. Um, there are other stories of uh, exciting microbes that were discovered, like Streptomyces hygroscopicus, that was discovered in the Eastern Island uh, uh, archipelago. And uh, thanks to it, we now know and uh, now have the um, a molecule that is really helpful for. Uh, human trans organ transplant that is called rapamycin and it's called like this because Rapanui is the original name of uh, Issa Island uh, Issa Islands. Um, so serendipity also is fundamental in this in this case. But let's say that screening protocols are even more important because screening uh, means that you find what you are looking for basically what you search for let's say sorry you find what you are searching for so it's really uh, fundamental when you apply a screening protocol to make it to ask the correct question because you will find the answer to the question that you ask the thing is that is the correct question or you ask it correctly it's not really easy this thing and uh, regarding mutations it's uh, still important because you can then select other types of uh, variants that can be interesting. I did it with a protein that is related to mRNA metabolism to select a microbe that could be more resistant towards uh, acetic acid, that is one of the uh, toxin compounds that is released from lignocellulose. cellulose. Um, so in that case, you can have basically two options. So either it's uh, evolution, uh, natural evolution, or a, a rational design and uh, rational design can be done uh, now even more thanks to digital uh, um, technologies with uh, AI uh, in principle they can tell you uh, which would be like the hotspot to be modified because you might know before the three structure of the enzyme so it's really powerful and probably potential that I myself haven't realize yet 
um, because I might say that during my career I've really seen uh, exploding some type of technologies that did, didn't exist at the beginning, like CRISPR-Cas. Um, and so there are these two things and you have to keep them both in mind. So evolution, but also modification uh, of, I don't know, genes to obtain uh, enzymes that are uh, not feedback inhibited from the substrate, for example. Yeah, yeah, pretty clear. Uh, I want to give a shout out to the explorative basic research on biodiversity that you mentioned to discover interesting microorganisms that are interesting for their own sake and then can be adapted to make uh, great sure. industrial biotechnologies. So thank you for giving us examples on that. I think you made the idea clear. Um, I, I, guess I would like to say in this case that like uh, basic research, it's fundamental. I mean, okay, okay, okay. Basic and fundamental are synonymous, but <laughs> the thing is that there are two sides of the same coin, the applied and the fundamental research, because without fundamental research, there's no applied research. So when I go online and I look that this gene of yeast uh, codify for a specific enzyme that have this uh, reaction and blah, blah, and this structure, I can know this uh, information because someone has did it before me. So the wiser will be completely uh, lost. And let's say that biotechnology is born has more uh, applied. Okay, so I always say that the difference between biotechnology and biology is that biology answers to the question uh, what is it? And biotechnology applies to the question how can I exploit it? That looks like we are a very bad person, but <laughs> but still it's it's like more to say, okay, how can I can take this fundamental information and take it to a more applied sector. But this doesn't mean that the basic one uh, is less important. Yeah, so you have mentioned evolving microorganisms and in general, not only microorganisms, but also enzymes can be evolved. So would you mind explaining to us adaptive laboratory evolution or ALE and directed evolution, please? Okay, so uh, the thing is that with uh, uh, ALE, that is adaptive laboratory evolution, it's like, I don't know, uh, I want uh, um, microbe A to be able to withstand uh, molecule B, okay? So I take these cells and I gave it the cells of microbe A and I gave it uh, a certain amount of uh, molecule B, okay? And then I say, good luck. <laughs> so basically, uh, I walk away and I wait for evolution to make it core. So some microbes might completely randomly evolve for any reason to be able to withstand uh, that amount of, uh, uh, of molecule B that I gave. So what I do, then I screen for the survivors and I gave them even more amounts of that uh, uh, compound and then I look at the survivors and even more I go increase the concentration so in this case basically I exploit uh, natural evolution or I can induce it like with uh, x-rays uh, to, to, to increase the mutation rate and then at the end uh, 
I uh, select the survive. So basically, it's a squid game. I, I haven't never seen squid game, but the concept is the same. So only few survives at the end. And in principle, the survival of the fittest is something that happens because then you have the cells that are more, uh, in this case, robust to, to that kind of molecule. And this is great because then with reverse engineering, you can go to the genome of this microbe to see what happened, to see which are the mutations that arouse uh, in these microbes. And let's say that there are 10 of these uh, mutations. It could be that not all of these 10 mutations are related to the resistance to the molecule that you want, because often, especially with resistance, stress resistance, uh, they are not related to a single gene, unfortunately. Uh, so it might be that one of those 10 uh, mutations are actually is actually detrimental towards uh, your resistance, okay? Uh, so one thing that you can do is like directly evolution. So you take a wild type strain and you only add one of the single mutations or a combination of those because it could be that one alone doesn't work. It works only in combination with others because we have to remember that metabolism, uh, considering also genes, is really complex. So it's really like that some of those uh, uh, spots, uh, some dots uh, are really intertwined among each other. So we tend to think of all the pathways uh, disconnected among each other, but they are really connected and it's really a complex machine, uh, a biological cell. Um, and But let's say that this game of evolution, it's really a, a betting game because it could be that the mutation that will be like your jackpot happens in a cell that also have a mutation that is lethal to the cell itself. And so the cell dies and you lost it. So it's basically a game, it's like the lottery. And you also, you, you, you think of the fact that uh, with high numbers, you decrease the, 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 the percentage where you lose the, the mutation that could be really helpful. So it's really lottery, <laughs> but uh, what you can do as a researcher is that to reduce the lottery effect and to increase the chance to select microbes that you really want. Great, really great. Uh, as I think that this is relatively advanced, I'll try to sum it up for our one to follow. Um, so basically what you do with ALE or Adaptive Laboratory Evolution is to use an escalation of violence on your microbes so, so yes yes absolutely you challenge them uh, with some sort of uh, for example stefano mentioned metabolite or it may be a change in the temperature or ph or whatever and uh, as uh, microorganisms reproduce pretty quickly and you have many 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 cells at the end of the day um random mutations uh, do occur in uh, mostly every cell i would say um, and by this, protein machines uh, that are responsible for everything happening in the cell, be it surviving at higher temperature or being able to metabolize a toxic metabolite, these protein machines, thanks to the mutations they accumulate, can determine a difference in fitness, so in the capability to survive this challenge, this violence, in a, a given number of cells. And as they survive better, just simply by 
evolution they tend to expand whereas the others die so in the end you'll recover mostly the cells that have these advantages mutations so thank you for explaining to Aza um, and maybe it's time to shift topic just a little bit to introduce microbial synthesis of organic acids as a key example of industrial biotechnology process so here the purpose is to make organic acids because they are the fundamental blocks of organic molecules in general and there are several key examples in the industrial biotechnologies out there um, so Ideally, we would make them uh, from renewable carbon resources and uh, to do so, it's also important to evaluate different substrates. So to sum up, could you introduce us to the world of microbial synthesis of organic acids, uh, the purposes uh, and uh, the substrates that one uses in this field? Yeah, so uh, the thing is that organic acid, as mentioned, are really helpful for different reasons as their own like because mostly are uh, used to uh, increase shelf life of food let's say like you know lactic acid itself is a preservative um, but often uh, they can be used in combination with other com molecules like uh, alcohols because uh, carboxylic group of uh, organic acids can make reaction easily with uh, um, alcoholic group to make esters. An esteric uh, um, bond is really strong and uh, can make a lot of stuff. For example, polyesters. And, um, and often it happens that some organic acids have also an alcoholic group so if they have both they can this means they can can click together alone without needing any other uh, molecule so there are several examples like the most common one is lactic acid that is uh, naturally produced by bacteria mainly lactic acid bacteria like those that make yogurt and uh, we can use them to produce an industrial scale and then we can uh, purify the lactic acid and use them for do, for example, by plastic like PLA that is polylactic acid. But then there are other examples like levulinic acid or uh, uh, adipate acids um, that uh, are like acids that are really interesting because they are longer uh, and they can be used, for example, to, to produce other types of bioplastics, but other types of material as well. Um, the problem is then to obtain some uh, microbial factories that are able to do that, and mainly with the genetic engineering is something that is uh, developed. So, so these are some uh, some uh, examples, but like I don't know, succinic acid, uh, all of those like tricarboxylic acid that are produced naturally by or oh, succinic acid. Uh, um, that of course are important. Um, we might say that somehow also um, amino acids are uh, uh, organic acids, and uh, you know glutamate is important for the food sector, for example. Um, but yes, so um, these compounds are naturally produced by a lot of microbes that tend to 
decrease the pH of the environment. And this is evolutionary wise is important because it's a way to like uh, kill your opponents <laughs> because some of those microbes that can be out there would be like more susceptible to lower pH. So naturally uh, some cells like to to spit out some of this organic acid to to give the other some problems. Yeah. Um, as a last example, uh, maybe a last huge topic to introduce into this conversation, I'd be happy to discuss uh, uh, a few hot topics in industrial biotechnologies, which are actually hot topics in biotech in general. We've mentioned before CRISPR and uh, our listeners probably are already familiar with CRISPR as uh, it's been one of the leading teams in several episodes about very different topics, but also synthetic biology and metabolic engineering. So could you please, Stefano, introduce us to these uh, very fundamental topics uh, which are driving a major change uh, in the whole biotechnology field and uh, the trends that you foresee for the next few years? Uh, also, maybe by giving uh, us a few examples uh, as you've done beautifully throughout the course of this episode, which is something that I've really liked about today's conversation with you. So uh, I'm happy that for once I don't have to explain CRISPR-Cas because someone else did, thanks to the other <laughs> that were invited and managed to do that. And let's say that, for example, with microbes, we apply uh, CRISPR-Cas, I do in the lab, but not for gene editing, mostly for transgenesis. Okay, so to be more, uh, to have an easier way to introduce like some genes into the genome of uh, microbes without using uh, some, some selector markers. So, so regarding... Um, just to clarify, transgenesis yeah. means that you add a gene probably, whereas uh, yeah, exactly. gene editing means that you change a gene that is already there, which is quite different, yeah, but exactly. let's not be too technical. So yeah, please yeah, go. Exactly, exactly. So in transgenesis, you add a gene that is not from the cell, okay? Like in the example that I will bring like some plant genes into uh, the yeast. So synthetic biology, basically it's... Uh, an engineering approach to uh, in, in genetic engineering, let's say. So the examples that is often given is the one of the Lego pieces, okay? The, the bricks, Lego bricks that we like, everyone likes, uh, that are different shapes, uh, but all of them can be matched together. So the idea, it, it's like to have a box of Lego bricks, but instead they are uh, DNA parts. And these parts, can be combined together. You can might have, I don't know, an open reading frame, so it's like codifying parts, or a promoter, or a terminator, or a fluorescent protein, or whatever. Um, and you can also, you basically uh, match them together, like pieces, uh, and you create some, you know, construct where you just change one of the pieces and you have a, fine, a different result. So this is really powerful because it makes uh, industrial uh, genetic modification uh, easier, of course. You can make a lot of uh, combinations, uh, in, I don't know, with mutations and so on. We combine with everything that we just discussed. Um, so it's really uh, providing uh, an engineering uh, uh, mindset to genetic engineering. Okay. So this is also together with uh, metabolic engineering, where you want to study 
I don't know, like the fluxes uh, in some uh, pathways. Uh, this is goes more with the computational uh, counterpart with statistical studies. Uh, and in that case, you need to have more knowledge regarding uh, uh, the, you know, the thermodynamics of uh, reactions uh, and um, so on. Could you please uh, briefly introduce what are fluxes through pathways to our audience, please? Okay, so let's say in, in the natural, how fast some molecules pass by different timezimes. Okay, let's say <laughs> uh, there are some metabolism that are faster, let's say, inside of the cell compared to, to others because of different reasons. And it's really complex because then, of course, as mentioned in the cells, there's no single metabolism, a single pump pathway that are separate ones. But we can think of those like uh, the traffic with the cars. Okay, there are some parts of the city, uh, I live in Milano, that are faster, where cars go faster compared to others because there, in the other case there are some traffic jams uh, or there are more traffic lights. And uh, in the sense we have traffic lights with that traffic lights as well. Uh, but also you can make some combinations of enzymes, I don't know, make them like clustering together in the same compartment to, to make work together, especially when you try to combine um, genes and enzymes that are not from the same uh, uh, original organism. In this case, like one of the examples, it's the production of morphine. Uh, in, uh, in yeast, of course, morphine is uh, one of the major painkillers out there, but it's produced by Poppy. And we know that Poppy uh, had problems, issues. <laughs> um, and that's why it would be really interesting to produce it. Uh, and also, since it's a plant, it has also its own seasoning, uh, its own problems, climate change, global warming, it's also um, hardening these problems as well. The thing is that if we can make this compound uh, in a bioreactor, we can make it whenever we want. If it's either Norway, the Sahara Desert, uh, New Zealand or Antarctica, okay, provided we have electricity, of course, but that's another story. We can make it in the closed environment, regardless of the period of the year, if it's December or March or August, uh, it doesn't change the thing. So in that case, this researcher inserted into the yeast uh, genes uh, from uh, poppy, but also from other plants, but also from bacteria or animals as well. So basically they reconstruct uh, a really complex uh, pathway uh, with an approach of synthetic biology uh, and also metabolic engineering, uh, like changing some genes uh, of the yeast uh, to make it produce uh, better the uh, precursors, the upstream molecules that are needed for this, for this uh, production. Another example is the production of artemisinin, that is uh, an anti-malaria drug uh, that is generally obtained from Artemisia and it is a plant, so basically they inserted all the pathway inside Saccharomyces cerevisiae to make it produce this compound. Gotcha. Time for our last question and phase one will deviate uh, quite a bit from industrial biotechnologies questions that we've been exploring until now. So 
I'd be curious to know more about your role as a EU Bioeconomy Ambassador and in general as a public figure in science outreach in Italy and how you live is uh, in parallel uh, with your life uh, every day as a scientific researcher in industrial biotech. I'd also be happy if you could share with us a few of your top tips about communicating science effectively. Of course, I'm aware that this is huge and would need 10 hours of podcasts probably only to answer this last question, but just an introduction and to show to us the breadth of uh, being a researcher and simultaneously a science communicator, which I think that is something that several people in our generation are willing or at least trying uh, for some time to explore because we are aware of how fundamental it is to communicate science in parallel to doing science, right? Yeah, sure. So, um, yes, I really like this this double double li- parallel life, like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, provided that none of the two are evil, uh, at least I hope. Uh, oh, that's my goal. Um, so, um, how I like live it? Um, I live it quietly. Let's say I I think it's really an extension of the work. Like as scientists, we we. We need to do outreach. We we have to. We own it to the society. I might say, um, and also being involved in decisions that are important for the the society or at the political level. And I see that increasing like popularity, especially on social media, you see that there's really a trust boost uh, figure as a science communicators, but also as scientists. So I feel the responsibility on both sides and. Uh, there are some errors by the scientific community, there are some errors by the science communication community, of course, uh, but I'm really proud to be one of the bridges between these two worlds that sometimes do not talk to each other or don't even understand each other. And I see because sometimes when I, from in one side, it's like the other one doesn't exist or it's like they didn't even see what happened there. Um, um, so, um, from the, for the EU Bioeconomy Ambassador role, uh, I might say I'm the oldest one of the group <laughs> uh, because there are young, very young talent from like 18 or 19 or 20 years old from all over Europe, from Malta, Ireland, uh, Lithuania, Estonia, uh, Germany, Portugal, Hungary. Um, Austria, uh, Ukraine as well. Uh, so I'm really glad to be part of this amazing group because they are very, very interesting people with uh, a lot of experience. Also the younger one, uh, also from Belgium as well. I was forgetting. Um, and uh, this is really interesting because also having like this fire immediately at the beginning when we met the first time at uh, the European Commission in Brussels. It's not easy, but it's it's like when you find people that have your own uh, the same uh, um, way of thinking and the same goals. Uh, it's easy then to click, and uh, I'm really happy that I managed to click with people that lives all over the Europe, and uh, I'm 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 happy with with that. We managed to be part of this uh, Bioeconomy Congress in Brussels, the European Commission. It was really an exciting. Uh, um, event uh, that for me, I, I would say that I'm really accustomed to talk in front of huge crowds uh, in a lot of events, uh, but that one I felt really special. It didn't feel so nervous for providing a, a talk, 
since many I, I wasn't so nervous when I discussed the PhD I must say <laughs> but it was in an empty room because it was with COVID restrictions because I may say that I could feel, felt the difference between that place that was really one of the places that you see on television where European uh, uh, people discuss important stuff uh, compared to other things like in the middle of the street or in theater that of course are emotional but that thing you could see the difference and i would say that younger people were less afraid because they didn't have the experience of so much other uh, situations so they couldn't feel really the difference i was feeling it but i'm really proud uh, uh, i made it and i gave a talk as an introduction talk to the um, bio industry sector and I gave uh, this metaphor related to stars and connecting the dots, like in constellations uh, for bioeconomy. Uh, because my style uh, is really like uh, uh, fun style, uh, but also this one of really storytelling. I like storytelling. Uh, I like the, the creating a context where you keep the attention of the, uh, uh, the people that is listening to you. And uh, I also tried to give an impression in that case with the metaphor of uh, the stars and people remember that and a lot of people came after, um, to me with that or to make some jokes. That's why I like like making some jokes or making fun references or in pop references in an exactly that uh, exactly in a nutshell and I like inventing them uh, on the go as well also in English, uh, and um, and also what I do like in my books, uh, I like to refer to pop culture, cartoons, uh, movies, uh, or um, I don't know, uh, songs uh, as well, uh, or sports, football, uh, <laughs> that is one of my passions. Uh, uh, so it's this style, it's my style. Uh, and uh, because I, I think that this way people remember remember better what you want to deliver. Thank you so much, Stefano. This was insightful and all the episode was full of insights. Thank you for sharing with us both great information about the world of industrial biotechnologies and about your own personal story, beliefs and goals. So I'm looking forward to talking with you at some point, maybe in a few years, if uh, yep. there will be another podcast or something. And thanks again for being with us today. Okay, thank you and good bye-bye to all our, your listeners. You've just listened to A Biotech Futurist, a podcast by Luca Fusarbassini. This is the first series and a new episode is out every Monday. Please consider subscribing and rating the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Instagram or your top podcasting platform. And if you liked this episode, consider sharing it with your friends, as the growth of new podcasts relies on word of mouth. If you have any suggestions, don't hesitate to reach out to me on Instagram or Gmail at thebiotechfuturistpodcast at gmail.com. You can find the full AI-generated transcript of this episode on my website, lucafuzarabassini.com. I'll also post the links to the main papers referenced in this episode, which you can find here in the description too. Thanks for listening to A Biotech Futurist. I am looking forward to talking with you in a week.